Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. return to the natural ebbs and flows of living and to feel like they're in a sort of flow for back of for lack of a better word with their life um, so it can be sexual assault but it can also be an illness um, it can be a car accident it can be surgery it can be the loss of a loved one um, that they go through something and they're changed and they're not able to return to what for them is um, regular healthy functioning and so it's very personalized because what that looks like for all of us is very different um, so but the question of environment came up so I'll talk a little bit about that and then just a few more things and then we'll have our break um, in less than half an hour um, but I think one of the things about the environment that's important to consider um, is consistency can be really helpful for people and that may be something that um, as a as a teacher you're already doing or also just serves you in your own practice like you have sort of your um, you have your system for how you approach your practice, so perhaps you're teaching, kind of following something that is consistent. Um, but one of the challenges for trauma survivors is that novelty and new experiences are very um, threatening and can create a sense of fear and anxiety. So it's sort of thought that a healthy functioning nervous system can um, get excited around new things and new experiences and um, maybe a less balanced nervous system, somebody who'd gone through trauma will really struggle with something that's new and different and because it's unpredictable. And the unpredictability, particularly with certain kinds of trauma, can provoke a lot of fear. So a predictable environment um, can look a lot of different ways and so that's pretty broad. Um, but if you are teaching um, a regular class or you're doing a series, um, often following similar patterns for how you set up the room, for how you welcome people into the room, for how the flow of the time together is, for how it closes, um, will create a certain sense of safety. They know what to expect. Um, I think another thing about the environment um, is to think about lighting in a space. So this um, is more of an issue for uh, people who teach in the evening, um, but being in dark spaces can be very triggering for people who've experienced trauma, um, particularly people who experienced um, 
child sexual abuse. Uh, having the lights out is um, often can trigger and recreate what the environment might have looked like for them. Um, but also having the lights out, whether or not that's your experience of trauma, just creates this idea of uh, not knowing where you are in space. And as we mentioned earlier, um, the being able to orient oneself into a space, being able to detect, and a lot of this is happening at an unconscious level, this like threat detection that's happening is really important for people feeling safe enough to actually let go. So being able to see around the room is important for somebody to feel like they could actually really drop into a practice. Um, so I always recommend keeping lights on. Um, in some yoga studios, people will put people into Shavasana and then turn all the lights out. And I really, I, I usually say like, this is, um, you know, take what you like and choose what works, but lights out completely is like one of the areas where I feel pretty strongly that it's not the greatest idea. If there's anyone in your space who's experienced trauma, which knowing the statistics, which we'll talk about, there are always people in your space who've experienced trauma. So I always keep lights on. It doesn't mean you can't dim lights and create a more like warm environment. They don't have to be on full blast because that can also feel um, a little bit threatening too. Um, so uh, so finding that sort of like sweet spot in the middle is really helpful for people. When I lower lights, when I'm teaching, um, if I'm going to take them pretty low in Shavasana, I'll indicate to the group, I'll say, I'm going to actually adjust the light so it's a little bit darker in here. They'll stay on. But if you want more darkness, feel free to put like a blanket or an eye pillow or your t-shirt over your eyes. So the people who really benefit from total darkness, they can opt in. Um, but we don't create an environment where the people who don't like that or find it to be destabilizing don't have any options. Um, I think also with the environment, um, circles can work really well for people because they know where everybody is in the room. Um, but I've also seen it work for people to be set up in rows. Um, because some people <coughs> can feel like a circle is confronting, right? Um, and some people can feel like the rows works better because they're not um, making eye contact with somebody else. The other nice thing about rows, um, and I, I think, again, all of this is like along a spectrum, and there's no one size fits all. So you have to kind of just assess what works for you in your teaching and allows you to fully show up. And then if you choose the circle, um, there's other things that you're doing that are providing resources and safety and stabilization. Um, the rows for some people works because they don't have to make eye contact. Um, some people though in rows will not want to have anyone behind them. So they'll always opt for like the back room, back of the room. So they just have a wall behind them and that can feel more comfortable for people. Um, so one thing I do when I teach like a series is I do a little evaluation. Um, and maybe that's because I worked on college campuses for a while where everything gets, you have to evaluate and assess everything and like prove everything mm -hmm. um, in order to keep it going. But I did an evaluation. I would do evaluations regularly about the space dynamics and what was working for people. Um, because I had read that low lighting was... Um, not something that you should do when teaching a trauma-informed yoga class. 
Um, but the people that I were teaching really loved it. And so we had like twinkly lights, kind of like um, holiday lights um, that we would like line the room with and it created this like lighting from the ground and then we just had a couple of lamps and they loved that. So, um, so it's important to remember that there isn't like a one size fits all. And um, also, as we're talking about some of these things we can do, we can't inoculate these spaces or these practices um, from triggering people. It's going to happen. Um, and I always think that if it happens within the container of a, a practice like this, it's a much safer place than it happening on the street when somebody's walking down the street and they feel triggered. So in these spaces, hopefully we've given some people some of the tools to work with or we ourselves have some tools to be able to meet them with. Um, and also with, with getting triggered around something, um, it is also an opportunity for people to grow and to learn and to um, reflect on what precipitated the trigger, what stirred it, what's happening in their life. Do they Are they out of balance in different areas of their life? Do they need more resources? Um, do they need more self-care? Um, and I think that triggers also, also, not that I like, I don't like triggers and I don't enjoy particularly getting triggered, um, but they, um, because they are so inevitable and particularly if you have certain kinds of trauma, they're going to get triggered more often. Um, we get better, I think, with practice at meeting our triggers and self-resourcing. And I think that there's a way in which we can um, get a sense of our own recovery as we see how these different episodes or events trigger us and how we're able to respond to them. So I, I don't want anyone to feel like teaching meditation or sharing this practice with a trauma-informed lens means you cannot trigger people or that you even have control over that because we don't. Um, but there's just some things that we can do again to help resource them. So um, another thing that I've found in terms of the environmental safety is inviting people to bring something from home. Um, and again, it plays out differently in different kinds of meditation environments, um, depending how you're working with people. Um, I always invited them to bring something from home, whether it's a blanket or their cushion or an eye pillow or a stone, something that has some sort of personal connection to it that can be maybe that home base for them when the home base isn't happening internally. Um, and that also just allows people to make the space their own, um, which is just supporting a sense of um, empowerment um, and um, choice as well. Um, I also think it's helpful to um, let people know that they have some options in the practice, and, it, and it's hard with I guess it's kind of hard with meditation because there's so many different ways that one might teach it. Um, but it's, I think it's helpful to let people know that they can opt out of the practice at any point. So um, 
assessing the environment um, and sharing that with the whole group that if somebody needs to lay down during the practice, that that is okay. Changing positions during the practice is okay. Um, that if somebody needs to actually exit the space, that that is okay too, but that those things happen with a certain degree to the extent that the person can control um, of sensitivity to the rest of the group and what's happening in this space. Can I add one comment? Yes, please. Um, when we teach meditation practice, I always encourage people during the time period not to leave the room. Yeah because um, I've had quite a few experiences where yeah. people stand up and faint. Oh. Yeah. So if people are having a hard time to lie down, take Shavasana or do child's pose or something. Okay. Um, but I've seen quite a few times. Yeah. Someone is feeling, you know, something going on and they decide the best thing is to leave the room and they yeah. stand up and they faint. Yeah. And, uh, and you can really hurt yourself. Yes, you can. So, um... I just wanted to add a footnote to that. No, I think that's a great <laughs> footnote, and it's really important because we don't want people to get hurt. Yeah. Um, my so, footnote so, to so your so footnote. So it would always be like, if you really think the best thing to do is to leave the room, to leave the room, and also be aware that maybe there's a few things you should do before you stand up. Yes, that's, I would agree with that. Yeah, so kind of um, giving them a plan for how to exit most safely. Um, and and you can share that, that standing up immediately in the middle of um, the practice and something that's feeling a little bit overwhelming or activating could could have that effect. Um, but I do think it's important to allow people to eventually leave if they need to, um, because being forced to stay somewhere um, is going to recreate the experience of being traumatized. And um, I didn't say this at the beginning, but... Um, one of the things that's happening during trauma is that there's this coupling of um, overwhelming terror and immobility, and they're happening together at the same time. Um, and the immobility can come from being restrained either by a person or by a seatbelt or a car, whatever it may be, um, or on an ER table. Um, or it can be the immobility that comes through the nervous system that's taking somebody into freeze and there's total paralysis of the body and they can't actually physically even move their body. So when we get into these practices where there is some stillness and immobility um, for people that haven't been able to work a lot with their trauma, um, there's like an overcoupling where being immobilized and being really still can actually start to provoke the feelings of anxiety that will then turn into maybe feelings of fear and terror. Um, and then at the same time, when somebody starts to feel feelings of anxiety that start to escalate to fear and terror, it can have this automatic response in their body of going into a place of freeze and paralysis. So, um, so it's important to allow people to have some options to lay down, um, to do child's pose, and to take their time coming up. Um, I think that's also why it's important to figure out as a teacher how and when um, you might check in with people when that's happening. Um, and I usually preface my classes with letting people know that if 
they're activated, if they're crying, if they stop practicing, um, that I may come over and check in with them and just see if they need any support or assistance and that they can take it or leave it. Um, but also kind of normalizing that too, that there's somebody who is kind of keeping an eye on the group, um, would then create, make it a little bit easier for you to go over and check in with them instead of them, um, laying down for like two seconds being like, Oh, I heard him say something like lay down and then maybe child's pose and maybe they do that all really quickly and then they run out of the room or try to, and they faint. Um, but there's that window. If you see somebody lay down or go into child's pose where you could go and sit next to them and ask if there's any support that they need. And that might be enough to actually allow them to then stay in the room and to potentially rejoin with the group. Um, that, what's your, sorry, I'm interrupting your thought, but what's your policy on touching? Because I know that can actually be worse. It's an instinct that, like, I want to touch and comfort, but I know that that might not be. Is it just knowing the person, or is there a policy that you would... Yeah, yeah, I don't have a policy. Yeah, I don't have a policy on it. Um, some of the... Uh, there's like a wide spectrum of beliefs around how we want to interact interact with somebody who's experienced trauma. And on one end of the spectrum, people say like no touch ever. Um, and I don't really fall in line with that because that hasn't worked in my experience and it hasn't made sense for a lot of the people that I've worked with and other trauma survivors I've worked with where they feel that um, contact from a teacher, a safe person, is actually really restorative, and um, especially when there's been um, traumatic physical contact, that that positive contact can be really a counterbalance. Um, but I don't touch people unless I know them. So if I'm working with people um, and it's the first time they've come to my class, I wouldn't make contact with their body um, until I've met them and they've taken my class. Um, but there's also ways we can, um, that contact can be really grounding for somebody. So in um, the somatic experiencing technique, um, you know, in, in some psychotherapy traditions, there's never going to be physical contact between the therapist and the client. Um, in somatic experiencing, touch is actually used as one of the tools to help people um, work through trauma, whether it's the kind of touch that comes with, um, you know, putting the palms together and having a person explore like pushing <coughs> on you, um, or like holding onto your arm and like working out um, certain like aggression or tension through like using your arm. Um, but we also do things where um, we might just place our hand on somebody's back and ask them to just notice the contact of the hand on their back and notice if they can feel their breath there. And then we're always checking in, you know, 30 seconds, how does that contact feel now? And the person might say, uh, could you go a little lower or more pressure or can you take your hand off? Yeah, so always putting, the, I would always put them in control of that. Um, and. I also ask, so I don't just do like a move where I touch somebody's body without saying, um, would it be okay if I put my hand on your back? Um, and again, after you know somebody for some time and there's really strong rapport, it's different, you know? Like in yoga, I have a lot of teachers who have been my teacher for 15 years. They don't ask um, me 
for consent prior to giving me an adjustment or making contact with my body. Um, but they do actually tend to check in. If they're going to be there for some time, they do do an ongoing check-in. So a little can go a long way for people. Um, one of the things also that can be useful is to have people make contact with their own body as like a starting place. So like even just like holding their opposite arms or feeling their ribs or feeling their legs. Um, that can also be nice or sometimes like just feeling like some of the rhythms of their body and starting there can be can be really grounding as well. Um, you had a question. Oh, I was just having, well, I was going to say that as a meditation facilitator, I can't imagine when I would ever touch somebody's body, although I guess that sometimes minor postural adjustments might what if someone burst into tears? I wouldn't touch them. Yeah. I would never touch someone. I would ask them like I always Unless do. Unless I knew them well, yes. Yeah. Right. I wouldn't hug somebody who was crying in my No, I, would, I wouldn't hug someone. <laughs> I'd just really keep up touching them. I have. Yeah. I've said, you know, I've got really low to them down at the ear at their level, so I'm not above them, and I've really yeah. softly yeah. said to them, yeah. do you feel like you, you can receive a hug? And then... Inevitably, they say yes, but if they say no, I say that's okay. Is it okay if I just sit here with you? Yeah. Yeah. I just you know? consent. Just, you know? And it's informed consent. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it's God, the most healing thing that I can do. Yeah. You know, and it's that connection. Yeah. yeah. And one thing you can do is um, is you could start with like uh, with less touch. So you might start with what what would it be like if I just put my hand on yeah. your shoulder or your back as like the gateway to the hug because a hug is quite intimate yeah. and when somebody is in a vulnerable space even though we're asking it's not encouraged in the United States I <laughs> can be, to say yeah to, it's not encouraged to say like no like it's like you're offending somebody if someone's like can I give you a hug it's like I don't really want you to, but this feels weird because you've asked, and then it's like, what's wrong with me that I don't want your hug? So if you're in a vulnerable space, it can feel like really hard to say no to somebody. And um, so somebody may be like, yeah, a hug would be great, but maybe everything inside them is like, oh my God, a hug sounds terrible, but I don't know what to do. And, um, and I also don't want to upset this person. So um, sometimes even just starting with like, touching a shoulder or the upper back um, <coughs> can feel like a good place to be. Um, I like how you said, what would that feel like for you? Yeah. Right? That to me is giving permission to say that would feel horrible, don't yeah. or not great. Or, yeah. That's a really lovely consent. Yeah. Instead of, I want to give you a hug. Yeah. You know? It's yeah. more about me than it is about you. Yeah. Yeah, what you can, like yeah, what would it feel like? What might it be like? Um... Yeah, there's, there's a whole long list of invitational language that we'll cover. So there's a lot of great phrases out there if you're looking for phrases. Um, I wanted to share a quote um, by Clarissa Pincola Estes. Have any of you read any of her work? One of the big um, pieces of work that she's known for is her book, Women Who Run With the Wolves. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's a really incredible book, not just for women, I don't think. My partner has read it, and he's a man. Um, and there's a lot of incredible teachings in it. And I actually saw her 
Um, I'd never heard of her, and I went to, um, this was, it was interesting, I went a week before I was raped. I flew to Colorado, to Boulder, as a surprise. Um, I was living in Ecuador at the time. I flew to Boulder as a surprise for my sister's graduation from a university there. So I flew there, I show up, and um, the keynote speaker was Clarissa Pincola Estes. And I'm like, who is this person? They're amazing. Everything they're saying is amazing. Um, and it was interesting because then I flew back to where I was living, and I was raped. And a few days later, my mom came, and she brought Women Who Run With The Wolves, and I like devoured it in like two days and then reread it and then had to get new copies because it started to like fall apart and the notes and the drawing all these things but I highly recommend the book because um, she's not always talking about trauma or naming trauma um, but there's a lot in the book around just the nonlinear process of healing and grieving and loss and relationship that I think is really powerful. But what she says, which I love and I think is really important to keep in mind and connects to all of this conversation today is um, the body remembers, the bones remember, the joints remember, even the little finger remembers. Memory is lodged in pictures and feelings in the cells themselves. Like a sponge filled with water, anywhere the flesh is pressed, wrung, even touched lightly, a memory may flow out in a stream. So it just kind of brings up this um, idea that we are these organisms that is carrying everything that's happened up until today. Um, and these practices are very beautiful because they allow us to bring some of those things to the surface so we can look at them and maybe clear them. Um, but there is this, a certain level of sensitivity that also has to be brought to the work we're doing with other people. Um, so it's about 8.58. I wonder if we should close here. Does this feel like an okay place to take a pause? Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.